Listen this evening. Let yourself listen in a way that is easy and know that you don't have to remember anything that I say. Um, Because the point isn't so much to tell you something as it is to remind you of what you already know. And so if these words bring a connection in yourself to what's true and deep in your own heart, then wonderful. Um, And if they don't, then don't worry about them. Thank you. And what I'd like to speak about this evening is very central to the Buddhist teachings of wisdom. Some nights and some of the trainings that we do here at Spirit Rock are really involved in the taking action in the world, in the tending for and stewardship of and caring for the life of ourselves, our friends, our community, um, the work of the Bodhisattva. And it's terribly important to have that in spiritual life. Sometimes people think of spiritual life as being a kind of passive uh, modality. But in fact, uh, a wise spiritual life has two parts to it. Just as you breathe in and breathe out, one part is to quiet the mind and open the heart and be in touch with the deepest wisdom of our own being. And then the second part, like breathing out, is from that place of understanding and wisdom then to serve the world which is not separate from yourself. Tonight I want to talk more about the first part of the breath, the in-breath. And the image that I often use in teaching from Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, he writes, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone else to survive. And so I want to talk about the calm and centered part more than the active part, and those are just two parts of the dance. And what does it mean to be able to stay calm and centered um, in the incarnation that we find ourselves born into. Because um, that's really the game in spiritual life, is to step back and say, here we are in this human birth with this human body and feelings and thoughts. And as I talk about very often, this kind of strange thing that happened where you were born and you got a little fur in certain places and wiggly things at the end and the hole at one end of the body where you stuff dead plants and animals and grind them up and push them through the tube and all of those kinds of things. And here you are in this incarnation. And what are the rules? Nobody actually gives you the instruction manual. And the way that instruction manuals go these days, anyway, they're about that thick and you can't really read through them very well, even for your cell phone. It's like, you know, 80 pages of instructions. Um, So these are some of the Buddha's instructions for understanding the in-breath, the, the, the centered place of being calm and centered in the midst of the storm. When we come and meditate, when we come and sit, 
we sit in the center of the world. We take our seat in the center of our experience. My teacher Ajahn Chah called it taking the one seat in the middle of the world. And our plans and our hopes and our fears and our longings arise and our body pains and the sounds around us and the suffering of the news that we read in the paper this morning um, and the, you know, hopes because we just planted our garden in the yard. Um, All the things that make up our life will arise for us. Uh, Sometimes the very difficult ones, sometimes the beautiful ones. And we become the space of awareness. We rest in mindfulness, which is the space of awareness, that allows for the fullness of our humanity to show itself and to be received with some balance. My teacher Ajahn Chah in the forest forest monasteries of Thailand talked about this and he says, how does one do this? And in one of his uh, afternoon teachings, he held up a beautiful porcelain antique Chinese cup that someone had given him to drink from. And he said, the way I do it is I see this beautiful cup as already broken. He said, and knowing that it's already broken, that I'm not afraid to use it, I'm not afraid to enjoy it. It's precious. I know it's not going to last forever, and neither am I. And so knowing that it will be lost at some point, I can care for it and enjoy it and have the fullest appreciation for it. And then when it, you know, breaks, I can bow to that and say, that's the fate of all things. And my heart remains centered and calm. I know the cup is already broken. Now, it sounds like a kind of depressing way to live, actually. (laughs) But in truth, he was one of the happiest people that I ever met. He was happy because he saw the way the world actually is and found his composure in the midst of it. And he found that running a monastery where... Sometimes the food was terrible and there wasn't really very much support. And he was, um, because he was a kind of innovator in the teachings that he was doing, he was a bit of a pariah for the orthodox Buddhist temples that were nearby and and had difficulty and conflict um, with them. And all of that was just part of the way that he practiced. He said, of course, life has birth and death and joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain and praise and blame. Anybody not have that? And when I understand that this is the way that life is, I can live with a free heart. And I think of him as exemplifying what the world sees so powerfully and beautifully in figures like Nelson Mandela, who walked out of Robben Island prison after 27 years of both imprisonment and, and torture at, and at different times, with so much dignity and graciousness and magnanimity of heart that his very presence and inner freedom transformed a whole country, if not in certain ways, the consciousness of the world. So if we are to live wisely if we are to discover that kind of freedom, 
if we are to establish a compassion for the world based on a deep inner wisdom, what, it is, what is it that we need to do? Certainly, what do we need to do in meditation? And one of the first things that we need to do, or one of the most central ones, is to look for ourselves and see how is it to be born into this kind of an incarnation, a human incarnation. Um, and the Buddha's instructions to the Kalamas when he visited and they were confused about how to practice because there were all these teachings in India at that time that were a little bit like walking into your basic San Francisco spiritual bookstore and there's 10,000 books and, you know, which teachings to follow. And he said, don't follow the teachings of the old books, you know, or of the great masters, including myself. Don't follow them because some elder said so or because other people have done it or because they have a big temple. He said, instead, listen and listen with your own heart and measure them. Place them next to your own deep experience. And only when they ring true in your experience as bringing you benefit and ease and graciousness and wisdom and compassion, then say, these are teachings for me. So, um, I had a woman come to me in Massachusetts um, a number of years ago who had been involved in teaching um, uh, healthcare in her community. Her husband was a physician, and I think she was also some kind of healthcare practitioner, and they had a great group of friends. And she'd done Buddhist practice, and they were also involved in other spiritual communities, Christian and Sufi and Christian mystical. And then her husband died suddenly. And there was a tremendous amount of grief as um, happens when you love someone and they die suddenly. Um, and a huge outpouring from the community that which she lived of care and support. And among the kinds of care that came to her were also spiritual support. So one friend said, I will do um, set up an altar for the 49 days of prayer for the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, as we do in Buddhist practice. And then, you know, a, a couple weeks later, called her and said, it's, I, I just have to tell you this, I could see um, the spirit of your husband while I was doing my prayers and doing all the, you know, bardo, todo, the special Tibetan rites and practices and so forth, and I had this deep connection with his spirit and he's going to be absolutely fine in this whole thing. And she felt really quite relieved. Um, but then a few days later, she got a call from the man who led their Christian mystical group who said, you know, I've been thinking about you in this very sympathetic, beautiful call. And he said, oh, and by the way, I had this wonderful vision and he's there in the heaven of the ascended masters and I saw the light and there he was and everything's completely fine. And it was a little confusing for her after that phone call. So... Um, she didn't know what to do, and she called this dear friend who was also a great Sufi master. Um, and before she could even express her dilemma, he said, oh, I'm so glad you called because in my deep meditation I had a vision and I understand what's happened to him and I could feel his spirit and he's already taken incarnation in the womb of a woman in Washington, D.C. and this whole thing. And said, oh, dear. So then she called me, which, of course, was a problem. Um, and we sat down and had a talk. And I said to her, all right, you have all these spiritual ideals that come to you and all these ideas from people. Um, but what I want to ask you 
is what do you know yourself? What do you know so deeply and so true that even if the Buddha and, you know, Mother Mary and whoever you admire were here and saying one saying something else, you would say, no, 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 this is the way that it is. What do you know absolutely in yourself? Because that, I said to her, that may be all that you need to guide you through this difficult world of being a human being. Just that essence. And she sat for a bit and she said, the one thing I know is that everything changes. That whatever is born has a certain experience, lifespan, and then it passes away. And being in the face of her, the sudden death of her husband and her partner, she said, that's what I really know. And I said, if you could find your composure in that, and really know that things arise and they pass away, like the cup is broken, that may be all the wisdom that you need to live and love in this world. And I've since asked this question to other people, what is it that you really, really know? And certain, somebody would raise their hand and say, well, one thing I know for sure is that whatever point of view I have, there's another point of view, right? That there's not just one point of view in this world. You know, or somebody else raise their hand and says, my life depends on others to survive, on all kinds of other beings, not just humans, but on other life. And when we have these deep understandings, everything changes, our lives depend on the fabric of life in which we're born to survive, that our view is only one view, etc., and you can reflect on what are the deep truths that you know they become guide stars, lodestones. They become a place in the heart that says, yes, this I know to be true and I can use this to guide my life. Now, when we sit in meditation and begin to examine our own experience as a courteous audience would, you sit and you say, all right, I'm going to sit and close my eyes and pay attention to what is actually true in human experience. Things become quite simple if we shift from the content of the stories. He did and she will and I'm going to and this happened and so forth and begin to notice the process of being alive itself, shifting from content to process. And one of the first things that we sense as we rest in the space of awareness is that wherever we look, things are changing. This is one of the fundamental truths that you can test and see for yourself. So the Buddha says, Suppose a man or a woman who was not blind beheld the many bubbles as they floated along the Ganges and carefully examined them, and after doing so, they would appear empty, insubstantial, unreal, and exactly the same way does a meditator examine the bodily experiences, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, states of consciousness, and observing them with mindfulness, examining them, they too appear for a time like bubbles, have an experience, and then vanish, leaving no trace. See if it isn't true. I mean, what happened to the meditation you just did? Where did it go? Or, you know, this morning's breakfast, or that difficult phone call yesterday, or whatever happened um, last year. Or remember the year 2000 Y2K? 
I mean, what happened to it? It's all back with Genghis Khan and the pyramids and, and um, uh, you know, the ancient Aztecs and, and um, it's gone. It's, and the dinosaurs. It's back. In fact, so was yesterday. And so was the sitting that just happened. It comes trooping out of emptiness experience. It shows itself and then it vanishes. And wherever we look, whatever we pay attention to, experience, is always in change. So that one of the deepest truths of the Buddhist teaching, which you can examine, is the title of Suzuki Roshi's wonderful book on meditation called Not Always So. That's enough. Whatever experience, not always so. And of course, we try to repeat things, but they can never be repeated. 28 civilizations I could name to you, you know, the ancient Sumerians and the Hellenic and the Aztec and the Egyptian and the Chinese and the Portuguese. Remember when Spain and Portugal thought they were going to divide the world? You read that in history. You know, in the British Empire, remember that one? In some of your lifetimes, in the big Soviet Empire. And of course, then there's the American Empire, which is on its way out as well, I think, as best as I can observe. Um, they come and they go. It's what happens. Um, and our heartbeats and our lungs open and close and cerebrospinal fluid flows through us and we have our moon cycles women do and there are the lunar cycles and beside the menstrual cycles there's the business cycle and the stock market cycle if you haven't noticed, you know. Um, and the whole galaxy takes a hundred million years to turn like a Ferris wheel and we're just kind of hanging out on one arm of the galaxy um, and there's so many stars in the universe at the visible universe that the Hubble can see in the most distant galaxies that if everyone on earth were to name stars you would each be able to name 1.5 trillion stars each person each of the six billion people on earth okay so it's all changing, and it's, it's a pretty big dance. And we're trying to find security in this, right? Okay, we spend, America, spend $280 billion on security services every year. But as Helen Keller says, security is mostly a superstition. You know, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So this is the way things are. And I remember my friend Rodney, who ran the biggest hospice in the Seattle area, and he said, it's really amazing the way people operate. He said, I had a woman come in who was 95 years old and getting sick and coming closer to death. And she looked at me, she was sort of complaining, and she said, why me? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you never know. Here we go. A commuter hopped onto a train at New York and told the conductor he was going to Fordham. We don't stop at Fordham on Saturday, said the conductor, but I'll tell you what to do. As we slow down through the Fordham station, I'll open the door and you can jump off. Just make sure you hit the ground running in the direction of the train so you don't fall down. At Fordham, the door opened, the computer hit, commuter hit the ground running forward. Another conductor in the car behind, seeing him, opened the door and pulled him in the train as the train <laughs> resumed speed. You're mighty lucky, buddy, said the conductor. This train doesn't stop at Fordham on Saturdays, right? <laughs> So, you know, 
when you sit and take stock, you can have your plans, right? And then how is it actually going to be? And so what meditation does is it invites you to relax. The image from the Buddha is of children building sandcastles on the shore, you know, and defending them and don't touch my sandcastle and all the things kids do. And then, you know, they're called home to dinner and what happens? The waves come in and the sandcastles are gone and we're like that. It's more like being in the movies or in theater and somebody gives you a script, you know, here's the play that's showing this year in your life, right? And you get to some choice of it, but not as much as you would like, really. Isn't that true? You know, and then there are all these characters that come on stage that you didn't even invite, you know, and twist, and twist in the plot. And you get praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute, the kind of worldly wins. And this is the way that it is. And, you know, you can live in a place where there's, where there's a likelihood of flooding and put all the, these big levees up as they did along the Mississippi. And sometimes they work, you know, and sometimes they don't. So here we sit in meditation and we let the body be somewhat still and rest in the space of awareness and keep the heart open because you can't really see what's true without some tenderness, without some compassion. Otherwise, you're in conflict with this life and so you can't be that person on the boat who's calm and centered. You're frightened or afraid or trying to manipulate it. But when you allow yourself to be present for the praise and blame and the pleasure and pain and the gain and loss and the joy and sorrow, what you notice is a kind of waterfall of the inner dialogue. There are sounds that come and go and sensations that move and play and the breath breathes itself. And thoughts come like a ticker tape, you know, that little crawl underneath on when you watch the news and there's all those little, little words that are coming by, you know. It's like that and the mind just does it. You know, there's a little kind of ticker tape going on there and it doesn't stop very often. Or as I say, it's like the mind secretes thoughts, like the salivary gland secretes saliva. You know, okay, I'm going to meditate and not think. Good luck, you know. The heart, too, opens and closes. Sometimes you feel tight and I don't like this and I'm in a pissy mood and I'm angry at this and I hate myself and so forth. And it does, you notice it. And then sometimes it opens and if you think, oh, I just want a great big open heart and I want my mind to be spacious and quiet all the time and if I just could get there and keep it. But it's like, ah, you can't keep anything because it all breathes. And when you allow the heart to open and close and the mind to open and close, there comes a kind of honesty and graciousness that this is human incarnation with its joys and sorrows. My favorite cartoon from the San Francisco Chronicle shows these family crossing the Sahara Desert on camels, the father on the biggest camel with his carpets and um, bags, a mother on the second biggest camel, and then three children on the little camels behind, littler ones. The last kid and the dad are having this conversation with one another, and the father is responding and saying, stop asking if we're almost there yet. We're nomads for crying out loud. Right? <laughs> <laughs> S- 
so some people think that meditation is like you get this state, it's like holding your breath, I've got it, I've got this meditative state and it's fantastic. <laughs> but it's not the way that it is. The point is to make space for the joys and sorrows, the gain and loss, the light and the dark, and the birth and the death that happens all the time in our life. A poem for you from Billy Collins, our former poet laureate. See if I can find it here and all this stuff. Second, yes, called Forgetfulness. This is for those of us of a certain age. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. As if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of North Dakota. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It is floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall. (laughs) Well on your own way to oblivion where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim or ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. And so it's, it's tender, and it's heartbreaking, and it's also the dance of life. There is gain and loss, and capacity and loss of it, um, and it's the way things are. This is the, the way that wisdom sees the world. It's not to hold your breath or to hold on to particular states, but rather to discover that it's possible to be gracious with what is given to you, including the loss as well as the gain, including the pain as well as the pleasure. And sometimes the place that we learn to be most gracious is actually in our loss or in our difficulty. It's an odd thing about us human beings, but sometimes the, the circumstances that teach us the most wisdom are ones that are really difficult for us. Um, that teach us the most honorable honesty of the heart. So this, from a, a friend, a practitioner, in this new book that I wrote, Maria, who's a meditation practitioner, works as a nurse in the emergency room at a local hospital. She's described how she's finally learned the art of resting in awareness. Sometimes it's not too busy and I can work on automatic, check on a patient or do the paperwork while my mind drifts off to think about a million other things. And then we might get a whole crowd of incoming patients, accidents, heart attacks, asthma emergencies. I do my part, but I'm also tuned into the whole of what's going on. I've learned to open the awareness. 
It's as if my mind gets spacious and still, present, sensitive to what is needed, and yet kind of detached at the same time. I guess it's like the flow state that athletes talk about. I'm in the middle doing all the right things, yet some part of me is just witnessing it all, silent. It happens more these days, not just at work. When I do my meditation practice, it gets deeper. I had a big fight with my son, and in the middle of it, I could feel my body tightening, how right I thought my view was. And just noticing that, I relaxed and shifted to the space of awareness, and things opened up. I was saying no, but I could also feel all the love underneath, and how these were just our roles, and we had to play them well, and behind it, it was all spacious and okay. And you know this as well. You know this in your experience. You know when you get really caught up. And it's not that one doesn't need to stand up for things in a, in a, a powerful and caring way. But you also know when you get contracted and tight and trying to be right and how it doesn't really serve. That there's a place of caring and acting from strength that is really the place of wisdom rather than the place of aggression and fear and confusion. And this is called the wisdom of insecurity. And it's not passive at all. It's really a graciousness that says, yes, we know how to be in this world fully, and yet at the same time, as it says in the Tao Te Ching, we understand that the world is the way that it is, this human incarnation. Do you want to improve this world? I don't think it can be done, says the Tao. Well, this is important. It doesn't mean that we can't tend to things that are needing tending or work against the injustice of the world. But do you really think you're going to save the world? I don't think it can be done. The world is sacred. It does not need to be improved. If you tamper with it too much, you'll ruin it. If you treat it like an object, you'll lose it. The master does her job and then waits. She understands that the universe is out of her control and that trying to dominate events goes against the current of the Tao. Instead, because she believes in herself, she doesn't need to convince others. Because she's content in herself, she doesn't need the approval of others. And because she accepts herself, she finds her place in the world and this offers the greatest gift. That's really the gift of wisdom. Or that passage that everyone knows from the Ojibwe Indians where they write, sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. So it is possible to live with a gracious heart in the circumstances of the world and to tend to the world with care, with responsibility from this centeredness. Because it's not in our control and it's changing. Anybody not notice? Please raise your hand. It's okay. Mary Oliver puts it so simply. Two lines I've been reading a lot lately. For years and years I struggled just to love my life. Such a great line. For years and years I struggled just to love my life. That's half of therapy right there. You can kind of stop (laughs) that, right? And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind, 
Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. And this is the balance, T.S. Eliot's line, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still even among these rocks. So there's a, a wisdom in knowing both that we can love fully and also that we can let go. Because if you don't know how to let go, you won't be able to live with an open heart. You won't be able to live freely and wisely. Now, another thing beside the impermanence of the world that you see as you sit in meditation is what in Sanskrit is called dukkha, which means hard to bear. The difficulties in life, that life is suffering, is the wrong translation. The best translation is that life is subject to suffering, that it happens to everyone, loss, destruction, fear, confusion. Because everything's in change, it's not so reliable. And this is interwoven into existence. And to know this brings a kind of deep relief because the American culture, in some way, tries to teach us that the world doesn't have, shouldn't have discomfort and pain and loss and so forth. If you invest your money correctly, it would not go down, right? And if you buy the right kind of stuff, you'll have a really happy life, and it won't, you know, decompose or whatever happens to it, right? Um, and that really is part of the message of consumer society. Rita Mae Brown writes, she says, in America, the word revolution is used to sell pantyhose, right? (laughs) But it doesn't work that way. The first noble truth says that woven into incarnation is joy and sorrow, is gain and loss, is praise and blame. And we see it in the world around us. We carry it. We come in here and sit. And sitting with us are the images of Darfur and Afghanistan and Iraq. And I've been very much involved in what's going on in Burma. And so I have those images. And the images of Tibet, because I've also been involved in the difficulties of the Tibetan people. And you all have your own images. And the kind of tender heart that needs to hold all of these because for every well-fed child on the earth, there are also children who aren't well-fed and who don't understand why. And there is enough food. There's just too much greed and separateness and selfishness and it's us versus them and the insanity of racism and tribalism and nationalism and those things um, that no child knows. I mean, when you're born, you just come and say, here I am. You know, and you're supposed to be loved and fed. It's part of coming into this world. And so we carry this, and it's woven into our experience. And the thing that's really true is that much of human suffering is made by humans themselves. Yes, there's pain. Everybody has pain. There's loss. There's death. Those are the kind of basic difficulties of life. But a tremendous amount of the suffering of human beings in the world is created out of greed and hatred and ignorance. And it's not until we see 
that we can't run away from the way things are. It's not until we see that, yes, these are part of existence. And we have to find a way to stay compassionate and centered in the midst of them all that we can live wisely. So in the Mahabharata, in this great Indian epic, the Bhagavad Gita and so forth, there's a, there's a point where Arjuna, I think it might be Arjuna, but I'm not sure, one of the main characters is in dialogue with uh, an incarnation of God, of the divine, like Krishna. And they're talking about the amazing things about this world. And what's the most amazing thing that this deity sees in the human realm? And the most amazing thing Krishna or whoever it says, the, the thing that most amazes me is that, is that human beings can see people dying all around them and still somehow think it won't happen to them. <laughs> Emily Dickinson, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Surprise. And you think, well, if I do it right, you know, if I jog and eat the right foods and vitamins and things, then there won't be aging and sickness and death and loss and so forth, right? But it's here. Or there won't be betrayal from other human beings. Who has not been betrayed? There won't be grief. Um, Any day we can get a call from our doctor saying, oh, these tests have come up this way. Or even just in the little things in our families, the, the suffering of conflict between parents and children, brothers and sisters, the way we thought it would be, the way we're supposed to be. Florida Scott Maxwell writes, no matter how old a mother is, she watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. (laughs) And nobody's exempt from this kind of human commerce of hopes and fears and so forth. Lama Yeshe, this great Tibetan Lama, who was hospitalized for heart problems, right after, wrote after 41 days in the ICU, he said, my mind has become like an anti-god, my body like the lord of a cemetery, and my speech like the barkings of an old mad dog. It took a lot of work, he said, to get my meditation even to begin to work in this circumstance. And this is a very accomplished teacher. So this is human incarnation. It has joy and beauty and incredible wonder in it. And it also has pain and loss and aging and so forth. This is it. You took the ticket. You know, you get the ride. It has ups and downs on it. And it's kind of how it is. And what comes from this, when we let ourselves see, is mercy and kindness and compassion for ourselves and others for the human predicament, this, what Oscar Wilde called the tainted glory of life, that it is this way, and that when we can see it and bow to it, it doesn't mean we don't tend it or don't care for ourselves or others, but we say, this is the way that it is. This is actually what human incarnation is like. And then we can walk out of prison like Nelson Mandela did and say, this is part of it, the suffering is part of it, but it's not the end of the story. Elie Wiesel, the Nobel laureate, writes, Suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, 
you're degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our measure of suffering well. So this is another part of wisdom, and it asks something of you, especially in the world and you know, in the times in which we live. It's a dance, it's changing, it has pleasure and pain, gain and loss. It also is not yours to possess. The Buddhist teachings are called anatta or selflessness. It has this quality that who we are is not solid. We are a river that is always changing. We are a process and you cannot step in the same river twice. And the more that you are identified with things and claim them as your own, the more you will suffer. My teacher Nisargadot said, Wisdom sees I am nothing, love sees I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. So what does this mean? You sit and meditate, and your thoughts think themselves. You don't ask for them, do you? And they come trooping out, and they do their little dance, and then they disappear. Your mind has a mind of its own. Your feelings feel themselves. You didn't decide what feelings you were going to have tonight. Oh, it's hot. You feel cranky. You don't like it. Okay, well, that's it came by itself. You didn't say, I think I want to feel cranky tonight. Let me kind of gin that up. It doesn't work that way. Um, Your body breathes itself, doesn't it? The sensations come. The story I tell in most of my day-long retreats is of Mullah Nasruddin, the holy fool from Iraq and the Middle East going into the bank to cash a check and they say, can you please identify yourself? So he reaches into his pocket and pulls out a small mirror. Yep, that's me, all right. Maybe I told that last week, I don't know, but it's still worth retelling. In a way, what meditation is, is it's the mirror for the dance of life. And you get a certain body shape and a certain form and a certain personality. That's not much better than your body, by the way, if you haven't noticed. Um, It's just, you know, a personality. It has certain limitations to it. And you get to be the gracious, or you get to bring a gracious attention, the courteous audience that says, wow, look at this incarnation. Like a star at dream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. These are the images that the Buddha uses. You see thoughts and feelings and perspectives and experience arise and pass, and they're not really possessed. In fact, the more you hold on, the more you suffer. You get rope burn from holding on because it's changing. But when you learn to be gracious and easy, not holding on to your children because they're supposed to be a certain way for you, they don't like it when you hold on in that way. Or to your partner because they, you know, you gave this much to them and now it's your turn to get it back. You know the kind of businessman's love that I'm talking about, right? It doesn't go very well. But if you love someone and your love is, I want you to blossom and be fulfilled in your best way, not by holding on, but by caring, a whole different field of wisdom arises. This means letting go. Letting go doesn't mean withdrawing from life. Letting go means being present for the dance of life with an open heart and a a wise and gracious perspective. 
And what you start to do is rest in the space of awareness, in the ground of being, and trust. And it's a beautiful thing to learn to trust. You sit in meditation and you learn to trust. All this stuff comes and you're not doing anything. You're sitting like the Buddha under your tree of enlightenment and Mara, the the personification of difficulty and evil in the kind of Indian mythology, appears and tempts you or brings aggression and brings his armies and his doubts and so forth. And Mara is very cool because Mara knows when you're going to meditate, right? And is just waiting there and you can be in, you know... Emeryville, or you can be in Oakland, or you can be in South San Francisco, or whatever it is, and you sit and you close your eyes, and Mara says, good, I'm here, you know, let's get... And so you sit, and Mara appears with all the things that make up your humanity, and you can either be in fight with Mara all the time, which we do in our life, and suffer, or you can say, oh, is that you, Mara? Here you are again. Oh, this is the judging mind, and this is the... Uh, the sadness that I haven't let myself feel because I've been running around a lot. You sit quietly in the unfinished tears. The unfinished business of the heart will show itself. And so you weep a little or the longing that's there or the love that you didn't express and wish that you'd called that person and let them know will show itself. And you become the gracious or courteous audience that says, yes, this too this to joy and sorrow, praise and blame, and let me respond in a wise way, trusting more and more fully the space of awareness. If meditation teaches anything, it teaches us, it reminds us of our capacity to trust, of our capacity to find our composure in the midst of the stormy seas that Thich Nhat Hanh spoke of, storms and pirates, and that you can do this that it, was, it is within you. It is your birthright. Oh, nobly born, it is your Buddha nature that says, yes, I can see this dance. And if you have the honor, as I have at times, to sit with people as they're dying, especially if they're dying consciously, it's really amazing that kind of life review, some of it may happen after death, but beforehand, looking back and saying, wow, You know, that was an amazing incarnation. I mean, and that's about all you can do at that point because the game is over, right? And say, this was an incredible trip, and it went so fast. (coughs) In the middle of it, it seems very, you know, sometimes really slow, and, you know, you're in the thick of it. But at some point, it's like, wow, that was an incredible dance. And from that perspective, what really matters is so simple. Did I love well? Did I let myself love this beautiful life and care for it? Did I learn how to live fully and not hold myself back what I had to give to this world? And maybe did I learn how to let go, to live graciously in the midst of all these changes? So meditation isn't to have some experience. You know, some people come and they say, oh, I have all the tightness of body and then the tears come and then I have, you know, this problem and I get worried about that. That's not a bad meditation. It's just stuff. Meditation is to make the space of awareness of the Buddha and the compassionate heart that says, let me experience this human life. Let me be present for it and find the graciousness and wisdom so that I can act with dignity, with care, with a freedom inside to tend to this world.
It's so mysterious. At home, 4 p.m. today, says a female moth, and releases a brief explosion of bombacol, a single molecule of this female hormone which can rattle the hairs of any male moth within miles and send them driving upwind in a confusion of ardor. This is from Lewis Thomas, the naturalist. But it's doubtful if the male moth has an awareness of being caught in an aerosol of chemical attractant, even one molecule of it. On the contrary, he probably finds suddenly that it's become an excellent day, the weather remarkably bracing, the time appropriate for a bit of exercise of the old wings, a brisk turn upwind. En route, traveling up the gradient of scent, he notices the presence of other males heading in the same direction, all in a good mood, inclined to race for the sheer sport of it. Then when he reaches his destination, it may seem to him the most extraordinary of coincidences, the greatest piece of luck. Why, bless my soul, what have we here? (laughs) And so you think you're running the dance somehow, right? But you're not. You were born into a certain incarnation and body type and size and color and shape and personality and so forth. And some of them are easier or harder circumstances. And I'm not sure completely which is the better incarnation. I mean, I've seen people born in certain difficult circumstances who become amazing in their wisdom and compassion. And some who are born in very fortunate circumstances where that didn't happen at all. So I can't tell. It's not like I have some map of what you're supposed to be born into. But you got it anyway. It's too late, right? So for some reason you have it. What do you look for? in this life? What matters then? What do you seek in spiritual life? To love, to offer yourself, to find a dignity and care for this incarnation, for the beings around you? This is the human realm. And meditation allows you to sit and see it with an open heart and a a wise perspective. to take your seat in the midst of it all like the Buddha. And it touches you if you let yourself open to it, both the deep sadness of the world. The Buddha said, which do you think is greater, all the waters of the four great oceans or the tears that we've shed at times harming one another, losing things, the, the sufferings and loss and death in this world. Greater are the tears we've shed But yet, in these difficulties, there is treasure. You know, in the tales of the Arabian Nights, there's a farmer who's going along and plowing his field, and his plow catches on this big stone, and he struggles, and he gets angry, and he struggles again, and so forth. And finally, somebody suggests to him, you know, look a little more or something. And he looks, and he can't dislodge it, and he realizes it has an old iron ring in it. And then he digs around it and pulls it up and of course it's the doorway to some great treasure chest that's buried. Where you stumble is a treasure. Where things are difficult is also a gateway to compassion. It's a gateway to dignity. It's a gateway to the gracious heart. Life is not a journey 
to the grave to be arrived at in a beautiful and well-preserved body, but rather to slide in broadside, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. (laughs) So in impermanence is the gift of endless creativity, that life renews itself through you every single day and every moment says, here's a moment unlike the universe has ever produced before and here's a day unlike any you've ever had before and here's a person. You think you're meeting the same person that you've lived with for however long it is, a year or a decade or something. They're not even the same person (laughs) if you let yourself look. They're different each time. And there comes this tremendous trust of, wow, let us see the life that's unfolding and see it with beginner's mind. So impermanence brings us the line from Mary Oliver, I was a bride married to amazement. Brings us to see the world with beginner's mind, with an open heart, a a fresh way of seeing. And to see the suffering of the world Usually we think if we suffer that we're doing it wrong. Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche writes, he said, if you awaken your heart, if you search for the awakened heart, if you were to put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there's nothing there but tenderness when it awakens. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel a tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because somebody's insulted you or you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open and exposed. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. And it is this tender heart that has the power to heal the whole of the world. So somehow, even in our difficulties, there comes the gift of compassion, the gift of tenderness, the gift of openness. It's where we learn. And in the selflessness of the world, that we don't possess things, is the truth of interdependence, that it really isn't yours or mine, it's ours. And that in each meal that you take, There is the love for the spices of Indonesia and the Amazon rainforest and the, you know, history of humanity growing different kinds of chili peppers around the world and and, um, all the things that have made this amazing abundance that we see in our supermarkets. And in your own child is buried the love for all children that are born on this earth and all new beings. You know, and in every step you take is a trust of the earth that it will be there to support you and a learning of this trust of the earth. And this deep interdependence, my teacher Buddha Dasa said, you come to live in the forest monastery to breathe with the trees and to live with the animals and know that you are completely and wholly connected with them all. So a, a Taoist sage was sitting in, naked in his little mountain cabin, cabin meditating and a group of eminent spiritual scholars came and entered the door of his hut having hiked up the huge mountain intending to lecture him on the rules of proper conduct. When they saw the sage sitting naked before them they said, what are you doing sitting in your hut without any pants on? 
And the sage replied, the entire universe is my hut. This little hut is my pants. What are you fellows doing inside my pants? We are connected. Clarissa Estes writes, In mythos and fairy tales, deities and other great spirits test the hearts of humans by showing up in various forms that disguise their divinity. They show up in robes, rags, silver sashes, or with muddy feet. They show up in scales made of rose petal, as a lime-yellow old woman, as a man who cannot speak, or an animal who can. The great powers are testing to see if humans have yet learned to recognize the greatness of spirit in all its varying forms. And so when you live in Tibet or you live in Ghana or you live in Peru or almost any other part of the world except, you know, U.S. and maybe parts of Europe, the language that you use to speak of others is always familial. It is uncle, cousin, father, mother, before almost anybody that you talk to. It would be Auntie Condoleezza, right? In case you hadn't noticed, it is, right? And uh, Uncle George, that's right, you know, or maybe Grandfather Dick Cheney. I mean, and you know, families are weird. I mean, it's just how it is. And there are black sheep in every family. Um, um, but... The language is truer than not. It is true if you look around, and we're just about to end in about 30 seconds, this is your family. You got incarnated into the human realm, and you can live in it wisely. You have within you Buddha nature. You have this capacity to be open and free and connected with compassion and to let go and trust this capacity to love and live in this world with a free heart. You do. And these are your people. These are your species. We can do it. You know, it's really what the invitation of meditation is about, is to come back to this deep knowing and live from the great wisdom that you carried, not anybody else's, but that which is, you know, the beauty in your heart. Because you know you can live with yet more compassion. You know you can live with greater freedom and wisdom. And the invitation is to let that be embodied through you. So let's sit for a moment just as we end. To know the joys and sorrows of the world, to see them honestly, makes us trustworthy.
So I'd like us to do a simple one-syllable chant before we go out into the evening, but one tiny announcement first. There is someone, Allison, who's looking for a ride back to San Francisco tonight. Anyone who can offer a ride to San Francisco? A couple people in the back. So meet Allison in that back corner there afterwards. She will look for you. Thank you for that. And so the, the simple chant tonight, which we do often, in the Buddhist texts, there is a sutra of wisdom in 80,000 verses that's summed up in 8,000 verses and then in 800 verses and finally summed up in one syllable, which saves a lot of reading on your part. And the reason that this one syllable is considered the summary of the text of deep or great wisdom is in Sanskrit it is considered the first sound in life and the last sound, but most importantly, it's the seed syllable, ah, which is the sound of letting go or opening to life. And so let us just sing ah, and as you do, feel what wants to be let go of, you know, it's like the snake shedding her skin, what wants to be let go of so that you can leave here tonight with an open heart and a beginner's mind back into this warm summer evening. Ah, add harmony, ah, ah, and do beautiful things in this world and do them from a wise and tender heart. Thank you. Thank you for coming. For your, thank you for your generosity. And I'm about to go and travel and teach on the East Coast for a bit so there'll be some guest teachers and then I'll be back. I hope. You never know. Really, you know. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.